Um, would you open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 21, please? As Kyle stated, and I think Angela stated, uh, today's Palm Sunday, and so we're going to spend some time this morning going through Matthew's account of the triumphal entry and Jesus making his way into Jerusalem. And uh, I want to open us up in a word of prayer before we get started. So let's uh, pray. Let's do that. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, uh, God, for your goodness and for your faithfulness. Jesus, you are always with us. I pray this morning, God, for each person in this room. Uh, Lord, as we turn our eyes and our attention to you this morning, I'm praying that you'd meet us in this place. God, I pray that you'd use your word to speak to us. God, as we talk this morning even about what it means that you are king and you are messiah we ask jesus in your name that you make yourself known to us lord i pray that not a person would leave this room this afternoon uh, without being confronted with uh, the question of do do i believe that jesus is king that he is messiah and uh, lord i thank you so much for each person here and i pray jesus that just your blessing and your anointing upon this time that your spirit would move in mighty ways in your name amen <clears throat> so as i stated uh, this is the beginning of passion week and as i was thinking this week about this word passion um, i was thinking how that word itself just accurately describes the heart of jesus towards humanity like what a cool Thing that we're looking at this week, this Passion Week. Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, and then he's about to go through this brutal week. Friday, he's going to be crucified, and he's going to be raised again on Sunday. And what an awesome week. I mean, this is really central to the Christian faith this week that we get to partake in this week. And my prayer for you has been that we could actually see it for what it is this week, because for any of you that have grown up in the church or you've been around it, you've heard it a lot, uh, it's sometimes hard to really believe it, to actually know it deep down in your soul, in your spirit, because you've just always heard it. And so you do all the right things. This week is nothing more than tradition to so many people. You go through the motions. You're going to come to Easter service next week, go out to eat with your family afterwards, and you're just going to repeat over and over and over again. My prayer for you is that even as we talk through the triumphal entry this week, that's Palm Sunday, that there's some depth, that there's some understanding for us of what it is we're actually taking in, what we're adhering to, who Jesus is and what he did for us, and that we actually understand the, this idea of passion, like the, the heart that God had for humanity. Jesus loves the people that are created in the image of God, and nothing pr proves his love more than the events of this next week. Well, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, in their writing, it actually, they, they spend about one-third of their writing writing about this last week of Jesus' life. And so I think we know it's important because they wrote a lot about it. And so we're going to spend the bulk of our time in Matthew chapter 21 this morning, being that we've been working through the book of Matthew. I thought it would be kind of cool if today we actually went through Matthew's account of the triumphal entry. Next Sunday, we'll go through Matthew's account of the resurrection. And so um, before we do this, I actually want us to look at two other passages that sort of set the stage for what's about to come. So there's two specific events that, that Jesus engages in that actually tell us who he is and why he came. And so we're going to jump right into Luke chapter uh, 19, if you guys want to turn there, verses 41 to 45. And we'll start there. I don't think those are going to be on the screen. So unfortunately, you're going to have to actually open your Bibles this morning. 
Luke 19, 41, says this. And when he drew near and saw the city, and the city being Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, what that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." So here's what happens. Before Jesus enters the city, has anybody ever been to Jerusalem before? It's kind of a, it's kind of a cool image when you're driving up over the mountain, coming down into Jerusalem. I think for us it was kind of a really symbolic, like putting yourself in Jesus' shoes as he's coming up over the hill down into the city. But what happens before Jesus enters into the city, into Jerusalem, is that he pauses for a second and he does a couple things. Uh, one, he, he weeps, and, and we might ask, like, why in the world is Jesus weeping? But you have to understand that Jesus is weeping because he sees how lost people are. It breaks his heart to see a people that are separated from him. He knows that people are living lives apart from him, apart from their creator, God, and he's weeping. It's breaking him as a result of that. I think it breaks him today to see his creation living apart from him. But the second reason that Jesus is weeping is because of this prophecy that he just laid out for us. He knows that the city, that, that Jerusalem is going to come to absolute and total ruin. And in fact, that's exactly what happens about 40 years later. The, the Romans come in, they seize the city of Jerusalem, they utterly destroy the city, and it becomes a city that's absolutely gripped by fear. It's a city that's terrorized, a city that's filled with chaos. And now there, there are a lot of people in our current moment that find ourselves right now um, asking the question, where is God? Like, where is he in the midst of this? Where is God in the midst of our chaos? Where is God in the midst of this pandemic? Whatever it may be, where is God right now? And you have to understand that the Bible tells us that disease and sickness came as a result of what happened in the Garden of Eden. If we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, Adam Eve and Eve are created by God. They're placed in this beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden, this amazing environment. They had everything that they would ever need, but God lays down one restriction for Adam and Eve. What is that? He says, stay away from that tree. And what do Adam and Eve do? They disobey God and they partake of the fruit from the, uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, now sin enters the world. This is where it picks up. This is where separation is caused between God and his creation. Separation now between God and his creation exists today as a result of sin entering the world in the garden through Adam and Eve. And in fact, the, the Bible tells us that as a result of this, that the world is now scarred, that the world is sort of fragmented, that the world is broken. And scripture says that creation, listen to this, actually groans under the weight of sin. That creation feels the impact of the separation from God, but that creation is waiting to be renewed, amen? that it's yearning to be renewed, to be made new, to be restored back to its creator. And there was another pandemic that came as a result of sin in the garden. And that pandemic was death. 
because death did not exist before sin. Sin enters the world, and now everything has a shelf life. And so there's nothing like the world's current state that will make people ask the question, what about me? Like, what's going to happen to me? What if the worst thing happens to me? What if I die? And the amazing thing is that, that Jesus came to answer that question for us. The, the, the curse that leads to death that started in the Garden of Eden, guess what? Jesus came to reverse it. Is that not good news? Jesus came to restore all things. And, and nothing sort of proves this more than this final week of Jesus' life and this me the method and the means that Jesus uses to reverse that curse. And the crazy thing is that the method he chooses to use to reverse the curse is one that was absolutely and totally unexpected by almost everybody. Nobody knew what Jesus was gonna do to actually reverse that curse. And so that's where we're gonna pick up in the story this morning. The day before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he pauses outside the city, Jesus prays for the city, Jesus prophesies over the city, and then there's this other event in Matthew 20 that occurs prior to him going into Jerusalem. And this is sort of a setup to help us understand who Jesus is and why it is that Jesus came. So here's what we read, Matthew 20, 29. It says, and as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, it says, which I hate that, that translation because in our English word, pity sounds like a negative thing. Um, but what, what it says in other translations is Jesus, in his compassion, in compassion, he touches their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. And so just before entering the city, like I want you guys to picture this this morning. Jesus is approached by these two blind men and this is their opportunity. These men have literally heard about Jesus. They know that he's been a miracle worker. They know that Jesus has healed people. They know that he's healed other blind people specifically. And now this Jesus is actually in their midst. So they're not letting this opportunity pass them by. And so what do they say? They say, Jesus, help us. But what's really significant in this portion of the story is the title that they throw out at Jesus. What's really significant is how they refer to him. They say, have mercy on us, what? Son of David. Not have mercy on us, Jesus. Not have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us, son of David. And that title, son of David, we talked a couple months ago about the fact that it's just, that, that, that title's just loaded with meaning. Like as I said before, this is an event that helps you understand who Jesus is and helps you understand why it is he came. This whole event is recorded very specifically so that we can understand what Jesus is about to do at the beginning of this Passion Week. And so when they say, son of David, here's the significance of that phrase. By saying son of David, this was a messianic title being 
ascribed to Jesus. There were all these prophecies that were given a long time ago about this coming Messiah, the one that would save them. And one of those prophecies was that he would come from the lineage of David. David was historically one of Israel's greatest kings. And so according to the prophecies, this Messiah would come from the line of King David. And so when they say, son of David, immediately they're identifying the fact that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Like, this is the one. But here's the deal, is that by using this phrase to describe Jesus, they're also referring to Jesus as king. Not just the son of David, they're acknowledging that he's Messiah, that he is their king. And so two things happen here. These blind men can't see, but they know who he is. Is that not odd? (laughs) They've never seen him. They can't ascribe a face to a name. They just heard about him, but they know who he is, and they identify him as Messiah, but they also identify him as their king. And so what happens next is really interesting because Jesus doesn't deny any of the statements that they're making. In fact, Jesus goes on and and takes pity. Like out of the kindness of Jesus' heart, he sees their condition and he touches them and he heals their blindness, but he doesn't say, no, you're wrong, I'm not the Messiah. No, you're wrong, I'm not the king. Instead, for the first time, we see Jesus begin to embrace this phrase. And this must have been a massive relief to his disciples because we've talked about this before. In prior instances, in Matthew's account, uh, with his disciples, Jesus would be healing and he'd tell people, hey, don't tell anybody about this. And at one point, he performs these miracles and the people in this town want to take him and they actually want to force Jesus to be their king. And Jesus is like, nope, not yet, it's not my time. And so now he's like, "Mm, yeah, I'm king. (laughs) Like, I'll take it. Like, he's, he's proclaiming his kingship over a kingdom that's completely different than any other kingdom on this earth. And it's about to happen really soon. And so he, he's saying, like, I'll accept that. Like, son of David, this title, the Messiah, the king, like, I am this. And so this is what happens prior to Jesus entering into Jerusalem. This really specific event that Matthew records that sort of helps us understand who Jesus is. And so again, If you were one of the disciples, you'd be like, come on now, like game on. (laughs) Like it's about time you did this, Jesus. Like you're finally, you're finally getting this thing started. And so they're amped up that Jesus is actually acknowledging this. And so the last week of Jesus's life walking this earth begins in Matthew chapter 21, verse one. And it says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, To the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. One of the things I was thinking about this week that I hope you can see this morning is that in this last week of Jesus' life, Jesus is absolutely and totally in control of every second of every moment. 
Like he's, he's in charge of it all. He's orchestrating the whole thing. And so here at the very beginning, you see Jesus is even in control of his own entry. It's like the Uber donkey that Jesus is calling, right? And so he sends this guy ahead to arrange transportation and, and he gives them these specific orders. Like you go to this town in Bethpage, which is actually right next to Bethany, which Jesus was very familiar with this town. Um, the, these towns, Bethany and, and Bethpage were... Um, very close to each other. Martha and Mary were from these places. Also, a man named Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus in this place. And so the people in this town knew of Jesus. They knew about him. Like, if you raise a dead dude in a small town, the whole town knows, right? Somebody gets raised to life in Rathdrum, all of Rathdrum's going to know that fairly quickly, right? So they knew who Jesus was. They knew this guy. They knew his track record. And so, the, the, uh, um, so it makes sense that Jesus would say, like, hey, go into these towns. Like, people are familiar with me there. They know who I am. They know what I did with Lazarus. And there's going to be this donkey tied up. And I want you to go find it. And if the owner says, hey, what in the world are you doing? All you need to tell them is that the Lord needs it, right? Tell them that Jesus told you to come get that donkey. Sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? Uh, I'm not asking you guys to leave here this afternoon and go steal a car and uh, claim that the Lord told you to do it. It doesn't work. But the owner of this donkey, I'm sure it was like, oh yeah, like Jesus wants to use my donkey? Go ahead. It's an honor and a privilege that Jesus wants to take my animal and use my animal. But I want to push pause here for a second because there's something deeper that's going on. Every once in a while in my life, People will ask me this question. Chris, do you honestly believe these things are true? Like, you honestly believe that all this Jesus stuff is real? You, you really believe it? And I'll say, yeah, I do. And they'll be like, why? Like, I just don't get it. And there's a number of reasons that I can give. Like some of them are, man, I've just seen God move. I can give testimonies in my own life of God's faithfulness and his goodness and how he saw me through things and when he showed up in crazy times. But at the end of the day, even testimonies sometimes in and of themselves are relative, aren't they? But I'll give you one reason that I, I can't disprove. And that's the fact that he fulfilled prophecy. And there's no other piece of literature in the world that comes close to what you have in the Bible. There's nothing. Like, talk about being blown away. Go to Israel and actually go see the original documents from the book of Isaiah that were found in a cave in Qumran. And then try to disprove that it's all just a bunch of rubbish. Like, the actual documents exist. We're not just talking about one prophecy. We're actually talking about hundreds of prophecies fulfilled, like very specific prophecies. In fact, Jesus just gave this prophecy when he's, when he's approaching Jerusalem that we just read. And he begins to weep. And he sees the destruction that's coming to Jerusalem. And he's talking about it. Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew that 40 years after this instance, that's exactly what happens. The Romans come in. They lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. They destroy the whole city. They destroy the temple. And Jesus prophesied that 40 years prior to it actually happening. Let's get even more specific. Look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 4. 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. 500 years before this event actually takes place, this prophet Zechariah says, this is how it's going to go down. The Messiah is going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to be riding a donkey. And so there's a number of reasons why we can put full confidence in the Word of God, in scriptures. Like our faith is not just a blind faith. Prophecy is one of these reasons that we can actually have confidence in the Word of God. And it's really important for us to picture the scene as we read this passage. So Jesus comes in, and he arrives on what? A donkey. And verse 4 already told us that he comes in humbly. And it's kind of an interesting way for a king to arrive and make his announcement into a city. But I want to explain this verse a little bit. There are two ways that kings would enter cities. One is that a king would enter a city on a war horse. Most often it would be a white war horse, right? Anybody ever seen a painting of Napoleon? Is, is he on a red horse? No, Napoleon's on a white war horse and all the, pic, all the images you see depicting him, he's on this white war horse. That's what kings did. When they went to war, when they went to battle, they came in on a white war horse. The other way that kings would ride into a town was on a donkey. But a king would ride into town on a donkey only in times of peace. The, the, you would ride the, the donkey um, in times of peace and you would ride the war horse in times of war. But what animal does Jesus choose to ride in on? The donkey. And why? Because there's something that Jesus is trying to communicate through what's happening. And, and what it is that he's trying to communicate is that He's a king. I want you to hear this. This, is stuff that, this isn't stuff that you haven't heard necessarily, but he's trying to communicate, reiterate, he is a king. But he's a king who's humble. He's a king who's bringing peace. And now here's the difficulty with all of this, is that many of the people in the crowd don't want a king that brings peace. They want the white warhorse king that's going to come in and kick butt and take names. Destroy the Romans, man. This, you're the savior we've been waiting for that's going to come in and just rule this place. Like, announce yourself and make it happen. And here he comes on the donkey, you know, like, oh, that's so weak. He comes in on this donkey, humble on this donkey. And the Jews at this time, you have to understand, were living under Roman rule. Like, they hated it. They lived these oppressed lives. They wanted nothing more than for their Messiah to come in and to lead this sort of political revolution of sorts. But Jesus doesn't come in as a political leader at all. He wasn't leading a political revolution. Jesus was about to lead this revolution of what? The heart. We've been talking about this in the book of Matthew. He, he's totally bringing a revolution of the heart, changing the heart. It's not a political revolution. And this is why some of the very people who were standing there shouting, Hosanna, which means Jesus save us. At this point in the story, he's coming in, they're shouting this, Hosanna, save us. By the end of the week are the same exact people that are shouting what? Crucify him, kill him. 
And why is that? That at the beginning of the week, they're yelling, Hosanna, save us. At the end of the week, they're literally wanting to crucify him because Jesus didn't meet their expectations. So he comes into town on this donkey, and there's this humble picture. Like, I, I just picture the donkey from Shrek, right? This stupid, geeky donkey. This goofy animal. And so here's Jesus. He's coming in. He's riding on this humble donkey. And what this King Jesus is communicating is that, listen, he's humble. What he's communicating is that he's compassionate. But make no mistake about it, he's a king. He is a king. Don't let the donkey fool you. He rules all. And here's what's interesting about Jesus, is that Jesus is often humble, but Jesus was not modest. Like, he knew who he was. He knew the statement he was making. Jesus knew exactly who he is. It's not like Jesus is saying, hey, everybody, like, I'm a king if you want me to be. Like, hey, everyone, like, I'm a king, but only if you say so. He's making a declaration of the fact that he is king, but he's this humble king, but he's not modest. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so he comes in and Jesus begins to start out by establishing his humility. Isn't that crazy for a king? Like to establish his humility first and foremost. And this actually proved his kingship, that that, that it would be different from any other earthly king that ever existed. For, For Jesus, it wasn't about a political kingdom. For Jesus, it was about a spiritual kingdom that was taking place. And Jesus is totally unwavering about this. And so at the beginning, many of the people received him. It goes on to say in Matthew 21, 6 through 8, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks. So they they begin to drape their cloaks over the donkey for Jesus to ride on. Jesus sits on them. And most of the crowd, it says, spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees, and they begin to spread them on the road. And this is where we get this idea of Palm Sunday, these palm branches. And this was sort of a a symbolic gesture of welcoming this king in to their city. And and so in verses 9 through 11, the the, the crowds that, that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna. And what are they saying now as well? Hosanna to the son of David. The same thing that these these blind men were saying. Now the people are shouting it. And what they're shouting was this, save us, king. Save us, Messiah. Like, deliver us. He goes on to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, please get this, the whole city was stirred up. Not a little bit, the whole city. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, it's not to Jerusalem, it's not very big. But this is not a small thing that's taking place. This is Passover week for the Jews. There's literally tens of thousands of people in the city. Some people say there was upwards of a million people that would converge upon Jerusalem for Passover week. And so Jesus is already known. Jesus is a bit of a celebrity of his time. He's got crowds literally following him, and the whole city is buzzing around this activity that's going on with Jesus. And what is it that they're asking? Look at verses 10 and 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, 
this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So they didn't, they didn't even say this is the king or the Messiah. This is the prophet Jesus from, now, from, from Nazareth. And, and what Jesus does next sends such a strong message about who he is. So you have to understand this. That the gospel writers, when they're writing these books, that they're writing in order to help you understand who it is that Jesus is. And so they're recording specific events very carefully. Like each one of these events sends a very specific message. And so Jesus rides in on a donkey, and then what does he do after this? He moseys down and he parks it in front of the temple. (laughs) And here's what happens next. It says in verse 12, Jesus enters the temple, and Jesus drives out all who sold and bought in the temple And he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And this is really interesting. Like of all the things that Jesus could do, like Jesus wasn't trying to win friends at this moment. You know what I mean? Of all the things Jesus could do to go into the temple And to begin to flip over tables and call people out and then make the statement, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Like Jesus is establishing exactly who he is. You see, the the people understood that the, the temple belonged to who? God. The Jews got that. The temple was God's place. And yet what does Jesus say? This is my house. And there are people inside my house that are mistreating my house, and it's not right, and I'm taking that personally because it's my house. And so in using these words, this message was not lost on the people. Like, wait a minute, this is God's house, and yet Jesus is coming in, and he's claiming that it's his own. This is a major statement that Jesus is making. Jesus is identifying himself with God. He's saying that the temple is actually his house. And, and just so you know, this is something for those who put Jesus in this great moral teacher category, but, but not savior of the world category, right? Um, this is something for the people to, to think about who say, yeah, Jesus was a good guy. Um, we should all probably be a little bit more like Jesus. But in terms of him being the only way to God, eh, that's just a little bit too exclusive for me. Like, these are the people that he's addressing. I'm the only way. This house is actually mine. Because for Jesus to claim that the house of God was his own is essentially Jesus saying, what you think about me is actually what you think about God. And so in a very real sense, I guess it comes down to this. Uh, Several years ago, Tim Keller um, posted this a tweet, and he said this, this amazing quote. He said, Jesus cannot simply be liked. You either kill him or you crown him in your life. You're either going to crown Jesus or you're going to kill Jesus. Like Those are the options. Jesus didn't leave anybody any other option. And quite frankly, this is right where the crowd is, by the way. Like nobody is getting off the hook in this deal. It's either the crown or the killing. And and you know people are very fickle because as I said earlier, some of these very people who are shouting, save us, are the very ones who in a few days are going to shout, crucify him. 
And why is this? Because once again, it's because Jesus did not meet their expectations. And this is how it is for many in the world today. The Jews wanted a political leader. They wanted someone to throw off the shackles of the Roman government and this oppression. And Jesus says, okay, let's just say that I did that for you. Let's just say I, I threw those shackles off and I, and, and I got rid of your oppressor. Let's say that I led a political revolution. Let's say that I, that I came in on this white war horse and let's say that I, I waged war against Rome and I conquered Rome and I did everything that you're asking me to do. Here's the problem, is that even if he did that, you're still gonna suffer from the major pandemic, which was sin. Jesus had to go through what he was going through in order to de deliver us, to restore mankind back to their creator. Jesus wasn't about starting a political revolution. Jesus wanted a spiritual revolution. And a spiritual revolution is all about a revolution in the human heart. And I hope you get that this morning. Your heart has to be converted. And unfortunately, the human heart can be super stubborn. And the human heart gets to this point where it wants only what it wants, doesn't it? Anybody else in here struggle with that? The heart wants what it wants. And we'll do anything to get it. And Jesus says simply, that is the problem. And that's why I'm here. Like, that's why you came in. To soften the human heart so that he can come and he can free people from the thing that truly imprisons them. That, that he can deliver people from the real consequence of sin. It's been said that, that sin comes about when the servant puts himself or herself in the place of the king, but that salvation comes when the king puts himself in the place of a servant. What kind of king does that? Honestly, what kind of king does that? The kind that rides in on a donkey. <laughs> and so Christianity is unique because for us as Christians, I would say that uh, the believer's life is sort characterized by humility. We would say that's core, that's central to somebody who's a follower of Jesus. And this is why, of all people, Christians should actually be the ones that display humility to the world, because our leader actually displayed it from the very beginning for us. And so according to the Apostle Paul, this was the very attitude that actually allowed Jesus to endure this entire week. It's what carried Jesus to the cross. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus had his rightful place next to God, but that he left it and that he came to earth and in humility that he took the form of a man, that he emptied himself in humility, that he was obedient to the plan of God even to the point of death on the cross. And I want you to consider these verses, these verses that were foretold about Jesus as the Messiah from Isaiah 53. Think about the fact that these verses that I'm going to read in a second were spoken by a prophet 700 years before Jesus was even born. And here's what he says in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off and out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So this isn't a Messiah warrior on a powerful white war horse. 
This is a humble Messiah who's a sin bearer. And to the people in Jesus' time, he was an absolute joke. And I can't help but think that to so many people in our time, he's the same thing. Like I kept thinking this week, like if we literally watched him come trampling in this morning on a donkey, what would we think? Ah, uh, how lame. You know, like, that's so weak. Come on, dude. <laughs> but people can't understand why Jesus had to come, why Jesus had to die. And the Bible is really clear that it goes all the way back to the garden that it's this pandemic of sin that, that leads to death. And even the Apostle Paul says that that's the thing about death, is that it seems so permanent, but Paul goes on to write that Jesus took the sting out of death, that Jesus removed death's permanence, amen? And so not everybody understood who Jesus was. The same ones who shout save us will be the same ones who shout crucify him. And there's a ton of application here for you and I, even just in these verses. And I think perhaps more than anything, what we're learning in this moment is that if you choose to follow Jesus only for what Jesus can give you, or you choose to follow Jesus because you want him to make your life comfortable, safe, and secure, then when tragedy comes in your life, when a pandemic comes, you're gonna become unwound, man. Not a leg to stand on. And if Jesus exists only for our temporal happiness, if that's it, then the faith that you have is not in the God of the Bible, but really in a God that you've created yourself. And unless you put your faith in God, a God that's much bigger than you, a God that's much bigger than your agenda, a God that's way bigger than your fears, a God that's way more capable than you. Unless you place your faith in a God like that, then you will go through your life always struggling. A quote I read this week said that God created man in his image, and then man returned the favor and created God in his image. And so here's the deal, is that a God that doesn't push you, a God that doesn't stretch you, a God that doesn't shape you, a God that doesn't take you to new places, a God that doesn't take you to higher ground is no God at all. It's a false God. And in that scenario, the real God is who? It's you. You've made yourself the God of your life. Because essentially what we're doing is saying, I'll decide what's right and what's wrong, and I'll be the God of my world because it all works out the way I want it to work out in the end. And Jesus came saying like, I'm actually the only one, the only one that can deliver you from this. I am the king, I am the Messiah. And here's what's happening is that, that God wants to step into that space. He wants to minister to you. Like only as a sovereign and supreme God can. He wants to minister to you this morning. And so the, the right reason to follow Jesus is simply this, because of who he is. Je Jesus is God's anointed one. He, he was the king 
over every heart, over every life. Like he died for your sins. He rose from the grave. He's committed to actually coming back in power and in glory and in honor. And he's going to reign over all forever, for eternity. And one of the things that Jesus said before he left was this. I'm going to leave, but I'm going to what? Prepare a place for you. So that what? When I come back, I'm going to take you with me so that we can be together forever. How amazing is that? So whether you're here this morning, you struggle with anxiety, you struggle with stress. Maybe you have some sort of an illness. Maybe unemployment is an issue in your life. Or maybe a loss of finances. Maybe even death itself is sort of crouching at the door. For the believer in Jesus, you can actually conquer because Jesus broke the ultimate pandemic that had actually kept us in bondage, sin itself. And, and here's the crazy thing is that it, it begins as he gets on a donkey. <laughs> That's the craziest thing. And, and he's sending a whole bunch of people the, the right message. Like I'm coming in humility. I'm coming to turn the kingdom of this world upside down through humble servanthood as he makes his way toward the cross throughout this next week. I was thinking this week about the fact that there's another time in the Bible where it talks about palm branches being waved before Jesus. And the other time that it's stated is in the book of Revelation. The first time Jesus came to the earth, he's riding on a donkey. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is actually coming again, that he's coming back. But this time he's not riding a donkey. Next time, what's he riding? The white horse. He's coming back on the war horse. Revelation 7, 9 and 10, John gets this vision and he says this. After this I looked and behold, listen, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what's to come. Salvation belongs to our God. And he's bringing salvation how? Through his son, Jesus Christ. Some of you, you might be here today and you're hearing some of this stuff for the first time and you've been asking the questions like, what about me? Like, what's next? What, what if the worst thing possible happens in my life? And I want to assure you today that Jesus actually came to break through those fears. That Jesus came to conquer sin once and for all, the sin that led to death. And he's making the offer to you this morning, will you acknowledge him as king? Will you do it? He's here this morning. And I sometimes think for those of us that grew up in the church, we have one hit against us because we've done the motions. We've gone through it. Every year we do this, right? Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter. Go to lunch with my family, talk a little bit about how cool it is that Jesus rose from the dead, and then enter back into my life and go back through my next year. And I'm pleading with you guys that as we approach this Passion Week this year, would you pause for a second? Would you acknowledge that he's in our midst? And would you heed to the King and the Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning as the only way and the truth and the life? Because I'll tell you what, 
There's a bunch of people in this world today that think there's a bunch of different ways to God. So pick your way. And by claiming that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him, what we're saying is there are no other ways. He is it. And the amazing part about this story, you guys, is that um, he will come back. And what a beautiful day that's going to be to watch him come in on the white horse, won't it? Like, to literally be bowed before the throne, praising our King and our Savior in person, for real. What an amazing thing. And yet we read the story and we see that there were people who were legitimately followers of Jesus that totally wrote him off because what they saw was a guy that came in in a very humble way, kept his mouth shut, was beat, bloodied on a cross, and no king would ever do that. And uh, the blessing of this king is that he bore it for you so that you don't have to. And if you put your trust and your faith in Jesus, he doesn't promise that all things will be perfect in your life but he does promise that the one thing he came to defeat will be defeated eternally for you, that there'll be nothing holding you back from him anymore. And so if you're here this morning, you've never done that. Like, this morning's your morning. Like, let's not waste another minute. Like, get on it. Like, come to Jesus this morning. He's literally beckoning you this morning, asking you, like, what do you think of me? Who do you think I am? And as we enter into Easter, I want to remind us that there's literally no earthly fear that the resurrection has not already conquered. None. Like Jesus knows all and he's with us in it all. So will you acknowledge him as king this morning? Will you crown him this morning? Or will you be the one to give him all kinds of praise and accolades at the beginning of the week and by the end of the week be the one who would actually just crucify him? walk away from him and abandon him. Like, he's the real deal. Will you heed to King Jesus this week? Would you guys stand with me? I want to pray for you this morning. No idea where you're all at, what's going through your minds and your hearts this morning. No idea what you're entering into this next week. But I'll plead with you to just pause this week and really take it all in. Because this week is really just the precipice of what Jesus did for us, in us, through us. Like, we have so much to celebrate this week. And so as we go through this week, we get to Good Friday and we're going to acknowledge Jesus' death and the point of him dying, why he had to die, what, what was accomplished in Jesus dying. But then Sunday, we're going to come into it and it's going to be an all-out celebration because what are we celebrating? He didn't stay dead. He literally rose again. And the resurrection life of Jesus was not just in him, but offered to you and I through him you have a reason to shout and be pretty stinking elated if you ask me in this next week. What a cool thing we get to celebrate. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I just, I thank you for your church, Lord. I thank you for the people 
whose lives you bought through your death on the cross. I thank you, Jesus, for the power that exists within us that came through your resurrection. And Jesus, we have a lot of things pulling on us in this world, a lot of things that we elevate to God's status at times that we follow and listen to, a lot of things that we, we call kings because they're forceful and they accomplish what it is we want them to accomplish. But here you came, this humble man on a donkey, kept your mouth shut (laughs) and took the weight of the world, the sin of the world upon yourself so that we wouldn't have to. And that's a king that I want to serve. It's a king I want to devote my life to. It's a king that I want to give everything for. And so I pray for us as a church as we leave these doors. God, we have so much to celebrate in King Jesus and the Messiah, the one who actually saved us, not just some fiction story that we've heard, not just some cartoon that's in a storybook Bible, but this actually happened. This is real life. It is legit. And you are the king that deserves all the praise. You are the Messiah that that you You deserve our full devotion, Jesus. And so I'm praying for us in this next week, Lord, that we would acknowledge you for who you are and what it is you've done for us and live life in your grace by your mercy to its fullest, God, because of the life that you've granted us. Lord, I just thank you for each person in this room and I pray that you'd go with them today. I pray for those who may be here this morning who do not know you and I ask, God, if they're far from you, if there's a chasm, if there's a separation between them and you and they know it and they have yet to acknowledge you as their king and their Messiah, that maybe this morning is the morning that they believe that you are who you said you are, that you died on behalf of their sins to forgive them, Jesus, so that you could make them right before God. And I pray, Jesus, as they acknowledge you as king and they receive your gift of salvation, that they would walk in the newness of life that you've offered us because we don't leave these doors today walking out just begrudgingly, going back through life, but we live life in total rejoicing over what it is you did for us, in us, and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.